This episode is brought to you by Donner. Check out the show notes to find a good deal at Donner. Like the sound of this? This is the Donner Island Delay, and the really cool Donner LP that I've shown off on, like, Instagram. Check it out. Uh, They've got some really good summer deals, and check out their snap deals as well. Use the link in the show notes to help support the show. Get yourself some cool musical instruments, maybe some patch chords. Cool. This episode is brought to you by California Tea House. California Tea House is a family-owned tea store where you can find some of the world's best loose-leaf tea and organic herbal tea blends. Like a fine wine, there is no comparison between fine loose-leaf and common broken-leaf tea bags. So, yeah, no, check them out. Check them out. They have quite a bit of pretty awesome tea collections. I'm a huge fan of their white teas. Uh, They have a tea club that you can join, but, you know, they've got green tea, black tea, white tea, oolong, that uh, robios and herbal tea. They've also got teaware. So check out California Tea House in the show notes. You're listening to KZOM, Oleander Public Radio. Greetings, listeners. It is I, T.B. Spitzer and Farmer Dave, here once again to talk to you about the Cthulhu Mythos, its books, its monsters, its unfortunate human casualties, its timeline in general, and even its tangential bits, like the dreamlands or things of a weird nature that are Lovecraftian leaning. Once more we head into those dark woods, further feeling those malevolent forces upon us. Once again we walk down the lightless stone staircase in the middle of nowhere. You're listening to KZON. Great Disasters and Horrors in the World's History by Alan H. Godby, Chapter 25. Earthquakes in the United States and England. The fowls of every hue, crowding together, sailed on weary wing. And hovering, oft they seemed about to light, then soared as if they deemed the earth unsafe. The cattle looked with meaning face on man, dogs howled, and seemed to see more than their masters, and there were sights that none had seen before. And hollow, strange, unprecedented sounds and earnest whisperings ran along the hills at dead of night, and long, deep, endless sighs came from the dreary vale, and from the waste came horrid shrieks and fierce unearthly groans, the wail of evil spirits that now felt the hour of utter vengeance near at hand. The winds from every quarter blew at once, and shapes, strange shapes, in winding sheets were seen, and voices talked amid the clouds. And then earth shook, and swam, and reeled, and oped her jaws, by earthquake tossed and tumbled to and fro. It is a common assertion that when persons are drowning, all events of past life rush suddenly before them with startling distinctness, sometimes in amusing combinations, generally the reverse. Something of the same effect is produced by the earthquake, but in a far more terrifying way. Each one is witness to the panic of his neighbor, and no fright is so terrible as that which is infectious. In moments of great peril, a single calm master spirit may quiet a mob. But when the eternal hills are shaken, when the groaning earth reels beneath the feet, and the mountains are removed and cast into the midst of the sea, who is there that retains his presence of mind? 
man's social arrangements are calculated upon a supposition of the earth's stability, and when he finds himself the victim of misplaced confidence, there is neither courage nor spirit to reason left in him. Numerous are the cases where men have been rendered insane by such convulsions. To the ravage of the hurricane, the roar of the storm, the surge of the sea, the rush of the flood, one becomes in a measure accustomed, and in the moment of danger may take precautions for personal safety. But in the case of earthquakes, the reverse is the rule. None dread them more than those who know them best. The stranger in tropical America may sit at his ease on a summer evening, enjoying the beauties of the landscape, or he may stand in a crowded hall amongst a galaxy of wits and beauties, observing the kaleidoscopic movements of the gorgeous costumes before him. There comes a faint, peculiar quiver of the earth, so insignificant that the uninitiated foreigner may hardly observe it, but there goes up a wild shout of, Tembla, Tembla! And in an instant a terror-stricken, breathless throng surges wildly into the streets, the fields, the parks, anywhere, anywhere away from the heavy roofs and massive walls that would defy a hurricane, all blindly seeking to be under the open sky, only too often to be engulfed in gaping crevices. It is preternaturally terrible, this emblem of solidarity quivering beneath our feet, reminding us that the days of unbridled chaos, the wild wars of all the elements, the tremendous geological convulsions that have exterminated so many races of animals in the days of the past, may be as ready and powerful for destruction in the present. The sensation of utter powerlessness is so overwhelming that amid the crash of falling houses, the cries of entombed victims, the shrieks of flying multitudes, the rumblings in the earth beneath, and the trembling of the soil like that of a steed in the presence of a lion, the boldest and bravest can but sit with bowed head, in silent, motionless despair, awaiting whatever fate a grim, capricious chance may determine. In the strange, mysterious phenomena, which strike and do their work in a few seconds, one is disposed to see the disturbing dreams of fever, or the touch of a horrible nightmare, rather than any possible reality. It is no wonder that insanity, hallucinations, or graver nervous disorders, in such moments fasten themselves on people for life. When a power, which despite its constant recurrence, remains almost unknown, holds the lives of untold thousands in its grasp, the mind is affected beyond the power of pen to describe. Long stress of poignant grief finds its effect equaled in a few seconds. People dash convulsively on the ground, as though seized with epilepsy. Some may become paralyzed. Paralytics may recover the use of their limbs. Others lose the power of speech. Yet others are hopelessly idiotic. Not less marked are the effects on the brute creation. The owl, with nervous twitching head and feathers all awry, flits to the trees near the house, as though imploring the protection of man. The panther forgets his ancient enmity and creeps within the city gate. The screaming swallow leaves the eaves and wings her way to other lands. The long-silent crocodile scrambles from his native lair and rushes moaning about the sand. The frightened nightingale forgets her song. The doleful dog howls loudly in the street. The trembling ox and horse together huddle and groan as they tremble. The air itself is chill, as though it were turned cold at the manifestation of some awful being. All things are awed by the terrible wrath of God. The wrath of God. Yes, such is the actual name of the earthquake among the modern Greeks. Theomenia. 
No other title will they give it. They have braved the storm and the flood, the famine and the pestilence for 3,000 years, and recognize in each the operation of law, and against each may take precautions. But the earthquake, absolutely beyond control, is to them inexplicable by natural causes, and any attempt to explain it is resented. They know the quicksand in which the victim, erect, vigorous, in full possession of his faculties, stares his fate in the face, stands for hours with death grinning from the sand at his feet as it slowly drags him down. But this fearful opening of the soil, that in an instant swallows young and old, rich and poor, the loved and the hated, the city and the castle, it can only be the wrath of God. So to the Jew was the fall of Sodom. Not a single agent of nature can equal it in sudden destruction. It comes and it goes in a few seconds. Almost ere you are aware of its presence, it has claimed its thousands. There is no escape, no ruin so absolute, no desolation so pitiful, no death so remorseless. You stand chatting with a friend. The earth shakes, gapes, and the friend at your side finds a grave in the foundations of the earth. Two women shall be grinding at the mill, the one shall be taken and the other left. Think ye that those twelve on whom the tower of Siloam fell were sinners above all that are in Jerusalem? I tell ye, nay. So, as we have already seen, the phenomena of earthquakes are as clearly under the dominion of law as any other forces of nature. We know the forces that produce them, and though we cannot tell with certainty what combination of them existed at the location of any particular shock. We cannot hope to control the causes, but we can to a large extent avert the seriousness of the results. With this in view, we can consider seriously the extent of the ravages of this strange destroyer, without considering them as direct visitations upon the sins of a people. Such views as those of the Greeks, however, have been common among all Christian nations of non-Saxon origin, and still prevail to no small extent. But the peculiar sense of personal responsibility and power that belongs to the Teuton, Scandinavian, and Saxon stock has given a different impress to British and American ideas. Perhaps, too, the fact that Britons and Americans have suffered less from earthquakes than many others has gone far to modify the trend of their thought. Be that as it may, the dominant element of the race, reverence, awe, and with common sense and a dash of contempt for those of more superstitious disposition, may be found in the old hunter's comment on the outburst of Cosequina. What was the meaning of those shakes in New Granada a month ago? Nature don't mostly toss about this big earth just for sport and idleness. There is a meaning and a reason and a secret in every movement she makes. But 80 earthquakes in 24 hours aren't sent just to scare a pile of Nicaraguan greasers. Guess earthquakes don't take no more regard of greasers than of other big folks. So long as superstitious ideas prevail among a multitude of people, it is not surprising that they find portentous signs in earth and sky betokening the near approach of the dread visitation. This is naturally increased by the desire to have due warning. The ancient Greeks were especially anxious in this regard. So we find one of their grave geographers, Pausanias, declaring that earthquakes are preceded by unusual rain or drought, eclipses, sudden disappearing of springs, great hurricanes, fiery apparitions in the sky with long trains of light, and the appearance of new stars in the sky. The people of Mendoza, South America, when overtaken by a great earthquake, suddenly remembered that but a short time before, a flaming meteor of a brilliant blue color 
and awful appearance had hissed past their town. So before the Riobama earthquake, a brilliant shower of meteors took place, so also at the Kumana earthquake. At other times, the weather has been unusually rainy. Again, long drought has prevailed. Sometimes springs have become suddenly muddy and cleared as suddenly after the shock. Again, muddy streams have become clearer till the shock passed. Again, we are told that all animals manifest great fear before the earthquake comes, that lizards, snakes, mice, and rats rush from their holes in terror. Doubtless many smaller animals perceive tremors of the earth that pass unnoticed by men, but as to the efficacy of such signs in general, it is suggestive of Hotspur's reply to Glendower. The fiery Welshman, endeavoring to prove that he, too, is some great one, asserts that at his nativity, the front of heaven was full of fiery shapes, of burning cressets, and at my birth, the frame and huge foundations of the earth shaked like a coward. To which Hotspur answers, Why, so it would have done, at the same season if your mother's cat had kittened, and you yourself had ne'er been born. So much for popular beliefs. Quite generally, there are subterranean rumblings, or slight tremors, producing the more violent shock, but even these are not sure signs, as they may occur alone, or the earthquake may come unannounced. A notable case of the former is the remarkable subterranean roaring, heard at Guaraciato in Mexico in 1784. It lies in a rich mining district, with no volcano in the vicinity. On January 9, there broke out, after some preliminary mutterings, a great uproar, which seemed as if a thunderstorm were going on beneath the surface of the earth. A short distance from the town it could not be heard, and not the slightest tremor of the soil was perceptible, even in mines 1,600 feet deep. But so great was the panic it created, that thousands fled from the town, leaving it entirely to the mercy of thieves and bandits. The alcaldes, with true Spanish grandiloquence, asserted that the government would be able in its wisdom to say when danger is imminent and to take measures for enabling the people to fly for refuge, and it determined to impose a penalty of 1,000 piastres on the rich or of two months' imprisonment on the poor who fled ere the word was given. But though it was easy to make laws, it was not so easy to feed the people, for the affrighted peasantry would not set foot in the city, so the month of uproar became one of famine as well. A similar rumbling occurred in Malada, an island off the coast of Dalmatia, in 1822, and the frightened inhabitants besought the Austrian government to transport them to a place of safety. But though the explosions continued during two years, sometimes more than 100 in a single night, nothing ever resulted therefrom. So with regard to all popular beliefs on this topic, no dependence can be placed on any of them. There is nothing to warn us of the approach of the earthquakes, neither in the heavens above, nor the earth beneath, nor the waters under the earth. Has the reader ever experienced one of these strange earth storms? Perhaps not. Is it believed they are rare? They are as common as storms in the atmosphere. Within a period of 70 years, 4,620 have been recorded. Many more, doubtless, occurred completely beyond the pale of civilization. Hundreds have passed unnoticed, save by delicate instruments. Not a day passes without several being recorded. They are as widely various in power as the storm and the breeze. Not a region on earth is unvisited by them. Yet the reader will be disposed to think that the United States is almost free from these visitants. To a certain extent it is. We have not, in all our history, had a shock of extreme violence, or one that can compare in destructiveness 
with the strange convulsions of tropical regions. But in the rarity of shocks we are not so favored as might be supposed. A few moments' consideration of the records will be sufficiently convincing. In the memoirs of the Academy of Arts and Sciences in Boston is a paper read in 1783 by Professor Williams, recounting the story of some of the earlier earthquakes in our history. The first one noticed after the landing of the pilgrims occurred June 1st, 1638. We are told it was preceded by a rumbling noise, like remote thunder, which gradually grew louder and nearer. Then the earth began to quake till pewter and crockery tumbled from the shelves, stone walls toppled over, chimneys crumbled and fell. The shock passed from northwest to southeast and was followed by a second in half an hour. People found it difficult to keep their feet. It occurred in the afternoon, but there was no means of knowing what area was affected. As the country was then unsettled, the damage done was, of course, nil. Nearly four years later occurred a light shock, barely noticeable, in the same region. In 1653, an earthquake on the 29th of October stirred up the Puritan divines to admonish their flocks on the wrath of God. Still another occasion of the same sort was given in 1658. But of this latter, though we are told it was a very great earthquake, we have neither day nor month, nor any record of its violence, extent, or duration. The first convulsion of which there is any detailed account occurred in 1663, January 22nd to 28th, old style. An old narrative thus records it. About half an hour after five in the evening, a most terrible earthquake began. The heavens being serene, there was suddenly heard a roar like the noise of a great fire. Immediately the buildings were shaken with amazing violence. Doors opened and shut of themselves with a fearful clattering. The bells rang without their ropes being touched. Cracks appeared in the walls of buildings and floors separated and in some cases fell down. Chasms appeared in the fields and the hills seemed to be in motion. The fright of the inhabitants was shared by the beasts and birds who sent forth fearful cries, howlings, and bellowings. The duration of this earthquake was very uncommon. The first shock continued half an hour before it was over, but it began to abate about a quarter of an hour after it began. Probably there were a considerable number of shocks gradually lessening in violence. The same day, about eight o'clock in the evening, there came a second shock, equally violent as the first, and within the space of half an hour there were two others. The next day, about three hours from the morning, there was a violent shock, which lasted a long time, and the next night counted some thirty-two shocks, of which many were violent. Nor did the trembling of the earth cease until the July following. Many trees were torn up, and the outlines of the mountains appeared to be much changed. Many springs and small streams were dried up. In others, the waters became sulfurous, and the channels in which some had run were so altered as to be unrecognizable. Halfway between Tadousek and Quebec, two hills were thrown down and formed a point of land which extended half a quarter of a league into the St. Lawrence River. The island, Au Codre, became larger than it was before, and the channel of the St. Lawrence was greatly changed. This is, perhaps, as severe a shock as has been felt in this country, but though the shock extended southward to Pennsylvania, its chief energy was centered on a narrow strip on the St. Lawrence. Giving our Canadian neighbors the lion's share of the fright. Other light shocks were noticed in New England in 1665, 1668, 1669, 1670, 1705, and 1720. On October 29, 1727, another severe earthquake was experienced about 10:40 p.m. 
It seems to have had southern New Hampshire as its focus, extending thence to the Delaware and Kennebec rivers. Its approach was heralded by a subdued roar from the northwest, which, as it drew nearer, was thought to be the roar of a blazing chimney near at hand, and at last was likened to the rattling of carriages driven fiercely over pavements. In about half a minute from the time the noise was first heard, the earthquake was felt. It was observed by those who were abroad that, as the shake passed under them, the surface of the earth rose and sank. Houses trembled and rocked, as though about to fall to pieces. Movables were dashed about with a fearful clatter. Crockery was smashed, stone walls and chimneys thrown down. At Newbury, ashes and sulfur were cast forth from the earth, and also volumes of sand. Sulfuretted hydrogen seems to have been present in large quantities, also chemicals readily decomposed by warmth and moisture. A correspondent of the Royal Society wrote that a clergyman near Boston assured him that immediately after the earthquake there was such a stink that a family could scarce bear to be in the house for a considerable time that night. Another clergyman writes that in the following April, the fine sand thrown up by the earthquake had a very offensive stench. Nay, it was more nauseous than a putrefying corpse, yet, in a very little while after, it had no smell at all. How long it was before it began to have this stench, I am not certain, but I believe it was covered with snow until a little while before. Another minister records that, about three days before the earthquake, there was perceived an ill-stinking smell in the water of several wells. Some searched their wells, but found nothing that might thus affect them. The scent was so strong and offensive that for eight or ten days they entirely omitted using it. In the deepest of these wells, which was about thirty-six feet, the water was turned to a brimstone color, but had nothing of the smell, and was thick like puddle water. Some wells, dry just before the shock, immediately filled up. Occasional shocks were felt for some months after. From the phenomena present here, and in many similar cases, it will appear that large volumes of pent-up gases may be discharged in districts remote from any volcanic region. In some instances, we are informed that immediately after severe shocks, the streams and vegetation have proved poisonous to cattle. There were light shocks felt in 1732, 1737, and 1744, but none of these are said to have done any damage beyond throwing down a few stone walls. Thus we find within a century 14 earthquake periods in New England alone, and in several cases the shocks were numerous, extending over a period of several months. Comparing the small area with the whole region, and remembering that shocks are more frequent in the central, southern, and western portions of the country, it is fair to conclude that the merest tithe of those actually occurring could have come under the notice of our ancestors. The most violent shock ever known in New England came 18 days after the great Lisbon earthquake of 1755, preceded by a peculiar rumbling roar. Then came a rapid, jarring, vibrating motion, with an upward shock, then a violent, prodigious shock, as suddenly, to all appearances as a thunderclap, breaking upon a house and attended by a great noise. Then followed a series of quick and violent concussions, jerks and wrenches, attended by an undulating, waving motion of the whole surface of the ground, not unlike the shaking and quaking of a large bog. Several writers give a graphic account of the behavior of the good people of Boston at this juncture. The shock came at a little past four in the morning. Some sprang from their beds and ran into the street. Some lay shivering with fear, not daring to rise. Others rushed to the windows and, seeing in the gloom their unclad neighbors rushing about in the streets, shrieked aloud that the judgment day was at hand. 
Others thought that they heard Gabriel's horn and fell on their knees crying for mercy or fainted away. The boldest feared the crash of tottering houses. Children ran about crying for their parents. Dogs howled dismally. Birds flew aloft with frightened cries. Cattle bellowed with fear as they dashed about their pens. Screaming horses struggled in their stalls. Numbers of fish were killed by the shock. Changes were wrought in springs and streams after the manner of 1727. The damage done was not so great as might have been expected from the unusual alarm shown. A large number of chimneys in Boston were thrown down. Clocks were stopped. A new vein was broken from the market house, the spindle being snapped at a place where it was five inches thick. We are not told of any serious loss of life or property. The shock extended southward and was plainly felt along the east side of the Chesapeake, but not on the western shore. The sea wave set in motion traveled southward, and it is supposed to have occasioned the unusual commotion of the water in the West Indies. At St. Martin's, the sea suddenly fell five feet below its level and then rose six above. The time of the shock was determined exactly by an accident. Professor Winthrop of Cambridge had placed a long glass tube in his tall clock as a safe place. This tube, thrown against the pendulum, stopped the clock, which the day before had been adjusted to the meridional noon, and as Professor Winthrop had compared his watch and clock the night before, he was able to show that the shocks began at 11 minutes and 35 seconds after 4 a.m., November 18th, and continued about four and a half minutes. Eighteen periods of earthquakes are noted in the next 55 years, and at one of these, in 1791, nearly 150 shocks were felt. In 1810, 11, and 12, a series of remarkable shocks were felt throughout a large portion of the United States, but with a special force in the central Mississippi Valley. The first were noticed near St. Genevieve, but the center of violence seemed to lie around New Madrid, Missouri. The shocks became so sharp and frequent that Dr. Robertson was sent out to observe and record them carefully. He kept count up to 500 and then abandoned that portion of the work. The phenomena were much like those of the milder type of earthquakes everywhere. Around New Madrid, huge fissures opening in the earth emitted volumes of sand and gas, occasionally spouting water or sending out bursts of flame. Some of the fissures were 600 feet long and 20 feet wide. The sand and water was sometimes thrown as high as 40 or 50 feet. During the whole period, there were unusual disturbances in other regions. On the night of the most violent shocks occurred the great earthquake at Caracas, Venezuela, which destroyed so many thousands. Had the Mississippi region been a very thickly settled one, the loss of life would have been fearful. Upon the upheaval of a new island, Sabrina, in the Azores, to a height of 320 feet, and an eruption of the St. Vincent volcano in the Antilles, the disturbance ceased. It is not safe to assert positively that there was no connection between these phenomena, but there is little probability that there was. They serve rather to show how universal are the subterranean forces with which man must deal. The year 1811 was also marked by a storm of unusual violence and by the appearance of a brilliant comet. But, as noticed before, efforts to establish any especial connection between such phenomena have not met with any marked success. These earthquakes were so violent in the river itself as to almost shatter boats in midstream. Trees at some distance from the bank were hurled into the water with tremendous force. Flashes of fire and molten matter were thrown to great heights. The explosion seemed like a battery of artillery. 
sunken logs and snags were thrown from the deep bottom of the river to a height of thirty feet above the surface. Sulphur streams dashed from a thousand rents, leaving unfathomable fissures. Great forest trees lashed their heads together or were snapped off by the shocks. Small islands sank to the bottom of the river. Quantities of coal and charred wood were thrown up, some lying a considerable distance from the fissures that discharged them. Many boats were lost. Quite a number of people were buried under falling banks. It was undoubtedly the most violent convulsion in the history of our country. Real Foot Lake, now a noted fishing resort, we are told was formed by this earthquake. Time would fail to give us an especial notice of the many shocks received since the country has been more widely settled. With a notice of the recent Charleston earthquake, this list must be closed. This convulsion owes its importance rather to its location than to its violence. It was felt over about one-fourth of the entire country, its greatest force being felt along the Atlantic coast from New Haven to Savannah. The area affected was elliptical, and the shock was but little less severe at Atlanta, Georgia, in East Tennessee, and many North and South Carolina regions, than in Charleston itself. It was felt at Charleston at 9.51, August 31, 1886, and reached Toronto, Canada in four minutes. It did not travel so readily westward as northward. It is, of course, impossible to estimate exactly the damage done. A considerable number of important cities suffered more or less, but the majority were forgotten in the unusual severity at Charleston. The city appeared as though it had been through a siege, or as if a gigantic charge of dynamite had been exploded beneath it. In all directions might be seen heaps of ruins, houses tottering, cracked, twisted, in all stages of destruction. Ever and anon, a fresh shock brought down some crumbling edifice with a sudden roar, and a cloud of stifling dust veiled it from view. The night resounded with the screams of terrified fugitives, the tread of hurrying feet, and the groans and cries of the wounded. The parks swarmed with those in search of a place of safety. Hundreds were bruised or maimed by falling stones and timbers. Not a few were killed outright. Others, crushed in wrecks, died a lingering death. Appeals for aid were promptly responded to by all portions of the country. Even those localities which had themselves suffered severely came to the aid of the city that had been more sorely stricken. The greatest injury to life was indirect. Only 47 people, it is said, were killed outright. But few houses were left safe, and for a considerable time young and old, rich and poor, the feeble and the strong, were out of doors in tents, booths, or such rude shelters as they could hastily erect. The alarm was perpetuated by occasional recurrence of the shocks during several days. The continued exposure and lack of necessaries created a vast deal of sickness, and the deaths thus indirectly occasioned far exceeded those killed outright. The damage to buildings in Charleston is estimated at $5 million, but in comparison with the whole number injured, comparatively few of the houses were shaken completely down. Hundreds were shaken and shattered to the point of falling and had to be pulled down as unsafe. The shock was just short of a point where it would have made terrible havoc. If violent enough to overthrow the many houses, it merely shattered, its victims would have been numbered by thousands instead of tens. We may be thankful, with Lord North, that things were no worse. The nature of the shocks varied. In some parts of South Carolina, chimneys and brick walls remained upright, but crushed to atoms at the base, as if shattered by a powerful upward concussion. In other locations, evidences of a twisting motion were present. Houses were turned partially around and left almost unharmed. Again, 
As in most cases in Charleston, the chief movement appeared to be a horizontal one, the upper portions of walls and buildings being thrown down while the lower suffered little harm. More of these singular effects will be noticed in connection with other shocks. Crevices and fissures were opened. Railroad rails bent in a snake-like form. Mud, sand, and small stones were thrown out. There was no tidal wave, and artesian wells of 400 feet deep were not disturbed. There was no barometric variation, though the air is said to have suddenly become oppressively hot at the moment of the shock. Some Pennsylvania gas wells diminished, and a geyser in the Yellowstone Park, four years quiet, burst suddenly into action. These we must deem mere coincidences. As a whole, this has been the most destructive single earthquake in our history, while far inferior in real violence to the convulsions last noticed. For frequency of shocks and total damage in consequence, the Pacific states far exceed all the rest of the country. Their position with active volcanic regions in Oregon and Washington and Lower California renders them peculiarly liable to such disturbances. Within the years 1872 to 1885, inclusive, there were registered 75 earthquakes in New England, 66 in the Atlantic states, 75 in the Mississippi Valley, and 237 in the Pacific states. These facts ought to be conclusive evidence against the belief that, because storms and earthquakes are sometimes simultaneous, the one is in any way responsible for the other. These figures show the fewest shocks in the regions most frequented by tornadoes, while the section never visited by the latter shows more shocks than all the rest combined. Add to these the previous shocks recorded in our history, 231, and it is evident that we have our full share of such convulsions. In respect to earthquakes, our British cousins have been even more fortunate than ourselves. A cursory glance at British geology shows that at a remote age in the past, volcanic action was frequent and violent, but the whole region has long buried or healed the wounds inflicted upon the face of nature by the petulant giants of fire. Now and then there is a premonitory tremor, but the warning seems not to be for the grandchildren of the Druids, and the latter have been lulled to a sense of almost security. Yet at some periods of the past they have been seriously disturbed, if we may credit the old chroniclers, but their records are so brief and at times so conflicting that it is not always easy to determine the extent of the disaster. And it must be remembered that in the dark and middle ages, the mass of people knew absolutely nothing of affairs, not in their own immediate neighborhood. Perhaps the most striking feature of British earthquakes is the fact that, like the shocks in the Vesuvian neighborhood, the area they disturb is very small. It may be, however, that incompleteness of reports is responsible for this apparent peculiarity. Up to the last century, but one general shock is recorded, this being the first of which there is a definite mention, occurring in 974 AD. Five others are recorded in the next century, all local. Perhaps the most violent of the earlier earthquakes was the one which in 1110 shook the region between Shrewsbury and Nottingham, tumbling down many houses and injuring many people. At Nottingham, the bed of the river Trent was laid dry and remained so some hours. Probably a large fissure opened temporarily in the channel, allowing the water to escape into subterranean cavities. Three other earthquakes occurred in the Lincolnshire Fens in the next 32 years, doing considerable damage. In 1158, mention is made of a most extraordinary earthquake which shook London and vicinity, destroying much property, injuring several people, and causing the Thames to become so low as to be passed on foot. 
Seven years later, there was a general tremor observed throughout all England. John of Brompton relates a remarkable circumstance in connection with an earthquake in 1179. The ground belonging to the Bishop of Durham, at Oxenhall, near Darlington, was raised suddenly to a level with the adjacent hills, remaining so from 9 a.m. till sunset, when it fell again, leaving a deep cavity in place of a hill. Three other earthquakes occurred ere the close of the century. The last one, in Somersetshire, in 1199, being violent enough to throw men off their feet. Forty-seven years passed without any further experience of the sort, when a series of severe shocks, especially violent in Kent, overthrew a number of churches and other buildings of the more pretentious sort, and the same thing happened next year, affecting especially London and the Thames Valley. Again, in the year after, Bath and Wells suffered considerably, and two years later, St. Albans was shaken. Of other earthquakes in the next century, no especial mention need be made, save of one of unusual violence in 1385. A revolution in Scotland followed, and the superstitious populace, looking backward, concluded that the earthquake had been meant as a warning which they had not been able to interpret. A second shock, which followed the revolution, was supposed to express divine displeasure at their short-sightedness. But one shock, though a very general one, is recorded during the next 166 years. Then, in 1551, a slight tremor upset the people's furniture and dinner pots in a portion of Surrey. Twenty years afterward, a severe shock in Herefordshire was accompanied by a landslide. A large portion of a hill slowly descended during two days, turning a half-circle as it came, as though on a pivot. In 1574, a sharp vibration shook northern and western England at the hour of Vespers. Suppliants in Norton Chapel were thrown prostrate and fled in terror, believing the dead were rising through the floor. Part of Ruthen Castle was thrown down. In 1580, April 6, nearly all England was alarmed by a violent shock. The great bell at Westminster rang the alarm. Others joined in. Students of the temple rushed into the streets. Stones fell from St. Paul's. Showers of chimneys in the streets maimed several persons. A panic ensued at Christ Church, where two people were killed by falling stones, and several were maimed in the wild rush to escape from the building. Parts of the fortifications at Dover were overthrown. Also, several churches and castles were damaged. May 1st of the same year, the shocks were again felt in Kent during the night. This is one of the most notable of British earthquakes. It passed eastward through Belgium to Cologne. But it is needless to pursue the record further. Only two unusual features are presented among the many earthquakes following. One in 1731 was confined to an area six miles by five, and one in 1734 exhibited a peculiar rotary motion, shaking persons in bed around at right angles to their former positions. Summing up the record, we find that in the 10th century, one earthquake is recorded in England. During the 11th, 10. During the 12th, 12. During the 13th, 13. During the 14th, 4. During the 15th, 1. 6 in the 16th, 20 in the 17th, and 84 in the 18th. The present has also had a fair quota. But if we consider the damage to property, or the fatality, we must conclude that no country in the world is so favored in this matter of earthquakes as Great Britain, unless it may be Germany. Finally, all the disasters of this sort, both in England and the United States, so far as all historic records go, do not equal a single one of the many terrible convulsions recorded in the history of other nations. 
From the earliest times to the present, we find a constant succession of appalling disasters, many of which are almost beyond the power of comprehension. The most cursory glance at these horrors of the past should render every Anglo-Saxon peculiarly grateful that his lot is not cast in a land so cursed with terrors and more ready to sympathize with the stranger in his woe. End of chapter 25Disasters and Horrors in the World's History by Alan H. Godby Chapter 26 Earthquakes in Tropical America Hark! 
Louder on the blast come hollow shrieks of dissolution. In the fitful scowl of night, near and more near, angels of death incessant flap their deadly wings and roar through all the fevered air. The mountains rock, and thousand meteors flame about their heads. The thunder long and loud gives out his voice, responsive to the ocean's troubled growl, while bellowing chasms rend the eternal hills. Earth trembles at the mighty march of death. The reader will be assured, from the facts given concerning volcanic eruptions and the earthquakes of Asia Minor mentioned in the former chapter, that great earthquakes are as numerous in Asiatic districts as elsewhere. But beyond the bare fact, little is known of most of these. India has preserved no written history, and China and Japan have been till recently almost inaccessible to Europeans. So while the disturbances there are equal in importance to those of other lands, it is but lately that any definite information has been accessible, and our chief knowledge has come from personal narratives of white settlers and visitors to the islands of the Western Pacific. In Japan, there is, to say nothing of numerous volcanoes, strong circumstantial evidence of the frequency of earthquakes in days past. Almost all dwellings are constructed of bamboo and lightest woods, one story high, with screens of paper as partitions. Houses of stone are feared, the people preferring to take their chances on a great fire than on an earthquake. The same fact is noticeable in the Philippines, Moluccas, and adjacent groups. Almost the only stone buildings are those of Spanish and Dutch settlers. China has apparently suffered less, but we learn that in 1556, two entire provinces were laid waste. The extent of the loss of life cannot be estimated. The earth vomited ashes and flames, and ten great sea waves occurred in 24 hours. Since European occupation of the East Indies, the convulsions have been frequent and alarming. The city of Manila was completely destroyed, with thousands of people, in 1645. Not one stone remained on another. Severe shocks occurred there again in 1699, 1796, 1825, 1852, and 1863. The last named wrecked the cathedral while filled with worshippers. The loss of property was from $8 million to $10 million, or twice that of our Charleston earthquake. 400 people were killed. The shock lasted about half a minute, but opened many fissures, emitted volumes of gas, and spoiled the river water. Again in 1880, after some vague or irregular tremblings, there were several violent shocks. There was first experienced a peculiar sense of nausea and faintness, with a feeling of powerlessness or inability to flee. Horses stopped, trembling in the streets, quote, standing with ears erect, with staring eyes and stiffly extended legs, as though conscious of extraordinary peril. End quote. The natives, heedless of appeals for help, wildly sought their own safety or knelt devoutly invoking the saints. Clouds of dust filled the air, and heaps of ruin blocked the streets. The terrible hush that prevailed was broken only by an occasional cry for aid or the crash of a ruined home. Portions of ground between great crevices were raised five or six feet. 
other parts fell as much. But the confusion rapidly subsided, and occupations of all sorts were resumed. One newspaper, true to the traditional enterprise of the fraternity, dragged its paraphernalia from its ruined building and went to work in the middle of the street. An American publisher could hardly beat that. But a region whose earthquakes have attracted greater attention and have been more carefully noticed by scientific men than those of the eastern archipelago is to be found along the western slope of the Andes, extending thence into Central America and northern Venezuela and the West Indies. Ever since the Spanish conquest, earthquakes have been numerous and violent in this whole region, and judging from the character of the native dwellings, the aborigines were for centuries accustomed to such movements. But it remained for Humboldt in the last century to give us a more careful description of some of the greater of these disasters. Of the preceding disturbances, one of the most notable occurred in 1698, when the crater of the volcano Cargirazo fell in with a great crash during a shock of earthquake, and an area of 20 square miles was covered with mud containing numerous dead fish. A few years later, a similar occurrence north of Quito produced an epidemic of pernicious fevers. But of the many great convulsions, that of Riobamba in 1794 must rank as exceeding all within the range of authentic history, unless we accept the one which destroyed Antioch in the year 526. The area disturbed was the great volcanic plain on which Quito stands. No subterranean noise announced or accompanied the shock. Adjacent volcanoes were quiet, but the volcano of Pasto, 60 miles to the northward, had for three months been violently smoking, and at the moment the shock 60 miles away began, it suddenly stopped, nor did it again begin. The volcano of Cayambe, near Quito, seemed surrounded by meteorites, the pious people, alarmed at this manifestation of the divine wrath, formed a religious procession which walked through the principal streets. The result justified their belief in the potency of their prayers, for Quito remained unharmed. A great roar, since known as El Gran Ruido, was heard under the town some twenty minutes after the disaster, but at the scene of the latter it was not heard at all. In the immediate vicinity of Riobamba, the destruction was fearful. The entire plain seemed rent into small independent fragments, which rose or sank at will. Humboldt tells that an eyewitness might have seen, quote, fissures which alternately opened and closed, so that persons partially engulfed were saved by extending their arms that they might not be swallowed up. Portions of long trains of muleteers and laden mules disappearing in suddenly opening cross fissures, whilst other portions, by a hasty retreat, escaped the danger. Persons standing in the choir of a church, sixteen feet above the pavement of the street, found themselves lowered to the level of the pavement without being thrown down. The sinking down of massive houses, with such an absence of disruption or dislocation that the inhabitants could open the doors of the interior, pass uninjured from room to room, light candles, and debate with each other their chance of escape during two days which elapsed before they were dug out. 
Lastly, the entire disappearance of great masses of stones and building materials. The old town had possessed churches, convents, and houses of several stories. But in the places where they stood, we found, on tracing out among the ruins the former plan of the city, only stone heaps of from eight to twelve feet in height. End quote. Of some of the villages in the adjacent plain, not a trace was left. They sunk bodily, and the earth closed over them. Of the others, only heaps of ruins were left. Nor was this all. The great volcano of Tunguragua, at the southern extremity of the plateau, was rent asunder by the shock, or, according to others, had an eruption from the side. Immense torrents of thick, dark, sandy mud, mingled with pebbles, poured out and flooded adjacent portions of the plain, smothered scores still entangled in the ruins of their dwellings, filling numerous ravines and valleys, one of which was 1,000 feet wide and 700 feet deep. The total loss of life was terrible. One authority places the destruction at 200,000. 40,000 Indians were suffocated by the torrent of mud alone. It is the most destructive earthquake in modern history. The town of Kumana has been visited almost as frequently as the far-famed Antioch. In 1530, we are told, the sea rose four fathoms, the earth was rent, a fort laid in ruins, the town wrecked, and dark, noisome liquids ejected from fissures. In 1766, a long drought, 15 months in duration, had turned the thoughts of the people once more upon their manifold transgressions, and they were prepared for further chastisement. This came upon them. October 21, an earthquake blotted the town out of existence in less than a minute. The earth vomited sulfurous waters. The shocks were continued during 14 months. The good people instituted an annual fast and procession in commemoration of the event. Again, in 1794, Kumana was nearly prostrated. December 14, 1797, there was a tremendous upward shock with a noise like a mine explosion. Four-fifths of the town was laid in ruins. The atmosphere seemed converted to water, so great were the torrents of rain. The Indians held a religious festival and dance, believing the destruction and regeneration of the world was at hand. The first days of November, 1799, were noted for the peculiar redness of the sky and the oppressiveness of the atmosphere, though the water was not especially warm. At nightfall, the sea breeze failed to begin, and the dusty earth began to crack in all directions. The people were sure some evil boded. November 4, as a heavy storm came up, there was a sharp gust of wind, which the natives say precedes an earthquake. And a few minutes later came the shock. Two others followed during the evening. But though all the tokens of a great shock, according to native ideas, were present in such force that the people abandoned their homes and slept in the parks and fields, the great quake never came. The redness of the sky continued, and a few nights later occurred a brilliant shower of meteors. Despite these signs and wonders, Mother Earth refused to tremble. Humboldt concluded native prognostications were unreliable. 
During the past 80 years, destructive earthquakes have been more frequent in South America than in any other region of the earth. First on the list is the great disaster at Caracas. This town lies six miles from the seaport of La Guaira, in a valley, quote, where rains eternal spring, end quote. Shut in by lofty mountains, its aspect is somewhat gloomy. The cold mountain air keeps the evening veiled with clouds, but as a whole, the situation is so fine that the people would hardly exchange it for a site less liable to earthquakes. In December 1811, when the disturbances were so great in the valleys of the Mississippi, Ohio, and Arkansas, there was a sharp shock which did no especial damage. At this time there was a severe drought, which continued during the succeeding months, but no word of the disturbances to the north, or in St. Vincent, reaching the people, they were not especially alarmed. So the days passed till Holy Week came, and hundreds were in the great churches. At a few minutes past four there was a sudden shock which set church bells to ringing. Then came a second which made the ground seem as though it were boiling. This ceased, and the people supposed the danger was past, when there came the fearful subterranean roar but too well known in tropical countries, followed by series of alternating shocks at right angles to each other, and at once the beautiful city, with its palaces and homes and works of art, was a shapeless ruin, with twelve thousand corpses lying amid the wreck. Four thousand people were slain in the churches alone. The great church of Alta Gracia, one hundred and fifty feet in height, whose nave was supported by pillars fifteen feet in diameter, was turned into a heap of rubbish but five or six feet high. Nearly all had sunk in the earth. Scarce a vestige of pillar or column could be found. A segment of infantry, mustered in San Carlos barracks, was engulfed, but few escaping. Nine-tenths of the town was annihilated. Night came. The cloud of dust that like a mist had risen from the wreck, had settled to the ground. The full moon shone as calmly on the scene as in the past, and by the spectral light there were seen strange figures hurrying to and fro. Here passed a mother with an infant's corpse, while there a father groped amid the wreck and called by turns the names of wife and child. No tools were left in reach in all the town. Bare-handed creatures grappled with the stony heaps, and groaned in answer to the moans beneath. The aqueducts were shattered, and the springs were stopped. The Guaira River was the sole supply. Scarce vessels could be found to fetch it in. Here hurrying feet bore wounded creatures to the stream, but lint and bandages were all beneath the wreck. Two thousand injured people lay upon the turf with little of the needed help, but all their friends could do was done. Not even food enough could be procured at first. Then anguish-stricken souls repented of their sins and marched in procession that the wrath of God might be changed to mercy. Some driven to the verge of madness loudly confessed their sins in the open streets. Some promised to restore ill-gotten gains. Often the peculation was known only to themselves. Marriages were solemnized between many who had hitherto not considered a ceremony necessary. Children were formally recognized by parents who had before repudiated them.
Long-standing feuds and enmities were dropped. Caracas was not the only place injured. La Guaira, Maiketia, Antimano, Baruta, La Vega, San Felipe, and Merida were totally destroyed. 5,000 deaths occurred in San Felipe and La Guaira alone. It was impossible to give burial. Vast funeral pyres were made, and corpse after corpse consigned to the flames. The total number of deaths from the quake, including those who had perished from want and sickness induced by the exposure, was probably 40,000. Some have estimated 50,000. The shocks were felt as far westward as Bogota. It does not appear that any especial commotion was felt in Central America, though shocks in the latter regions are nearly always felt in Venezuela or Colombia. Every portion of Central America has been repeatedly shaken. The town of Guatemala has been four times destroyed, the people each time selecting a new site and adhering to the old name. The people of San Salvador, on the other hand, have obstinately clung to their site, though visited by violent earthquakes in 1575, 1593, 1625, 1656, 1798, and 1839, and minor shocks are of such constant occurrence that the locality is nicknamed the Hammock. But the shock of 1889 was so severe that they seriously meditated leaving, but they finally settled in the old place when four-fifths of their town had just been destroyed. But in Holy Week in 1854, as Mr. Squire tells us, unusual rumblings were heard on the morning of Holy Thursday. The inhabitants, somewhat alarmed, still went about their customary avocations. The remainder of the week passed without further cause for fear. At half-past nine o'clock on Sunday night, a severe shock so alarmed many people that they prepared to camp out for the night. At ten minutes to eleven, there came, without any warning, a fearful quaking, which leveled the city to the earth in ten seconds. Clouds of dust filled the streets. Wells and fountains were choked. Not a drop of water could be obtained. Not a house was left inhabitable. Scarce one preserved the semblance of being erect, yet the town was composed chiefly of low, one-story structures. The air was filled with fumes of sulfur. The neighboring volcano threatened an eruption. And in addition to the usual horrors of an earthquake, other features were added. The ex-president of the Republic was so badly hurt as to be almost incapacitated for duty. Indians roamed pillaging the wreck, dropping on their knees and praying as fresh shocks terrified them, then returning to the plunder, for they were good Christians. Justice, police, clergy, all were gone. The venerable bishop, Soldana, when dragged from the ruin, bade the people flee in all haste, for, quote, God had given the city over to the evil one as a punishment for its sins, and in spite of the name it bore, Holy Savior, it would be cast into the bottomless pit. End quote. The good bishop promptly headed the retreat of the clergy from the forces of Satan, evidently under the impression that if the people could only leave the accursed locality, the devil would not be so scrupulously exact in tormenting them before the time. The people flocked after the clergy in large numbers, 
believing they would be safest in the neighborhood of the holy men. It is well known that even the devil respects the cloth. The Republic had been rent by civil war for years, and in this critical juncture, it seemed that it was about to be renewed. But a man of strong will and energy and coolness stepped forward. Duenas, ex-monk, lawyer, deputy, and president, from his farm, like Cincinnatus. Collecting a few friends and digging some arms from the wreck of the barracks, he inspirited the new president, and martial law was proclaimed. The shooting of a few Indian robbers imparted to the remainder a respect for law equaled only by their practical Christianity, and the work of rescue began. Large numbers of the populace permanently forsook the site. Two years later, there was a great earthquake in Honduras, but the area of disturbance was not so densely peopled, and the damage done was proportionately less. Disasters of this sort caused most Central Americans to emigrate. Quote, then women and children form themselves into groups and travel through the country. They set the drama in which they have taken part to music and they go through the country singing the rude verses which they have run together in the different villages, and then send the hat around. After they have visited the whole of their own country, they cross the frontier into the neighboring state, where they are also assured of doing pretty well." During three centuries of Spanish occupation of South America, while scores of convulsions had visited the Pacific seaboard, None had shaken the eastern slope of the Cordilleras, or the Great Plains beyond, and there had resulted a settled belief that the entire region was, so to speak, earthquake-proof, but the illusion was rudely dispelled. In the extreme west of the Argentine Republic, on the high road from Valparaiso to Buenos Aires, lies the town of Mendoza, in full view of Tupungato and the mighty Aconcagua. Never having, in all their history, experienced any harm from these mountains, the people anticipated none. Quote, Mendoza had about 20,000 inhabitants and 500 houses, nearly all of them very handsome. It also contained two very large hospitals, several schools, a splendid cathedral, and several churches. Its trade was prosperous, and more than a hundred large shops testified to the extent of its commerce. There was no such library in the whole of the Argentine Republic. Its theater was most sumptuous, and the Alameda, its public promenade, was regarded as the finest in South America. One evening, an immense red and blue meteor slowly traversed the sky from east to west, and the volcano of Aconcagua broke into an eruption upon the night following, 20th March, 1861, without any premonitory sound or sign. The earth quaked violently, and in less than a minute the town of Mendoza had disappeared. It was transformed into a vast field of ruins, the highest of which were not more than three feet from the ground. Never within the memory of man has a town been so taken by surprise, for in this case the earthquake was not preceded by the underground mutterings which, even if only a few seconds in advance of the shock, give some sort of warning. Upon that night, and in less than four seconds, 15,000 people were buried in the ruins. 
Horrible noises, cries of terror, and heart-rending howls of men and animals filled the air, and a thick cloud of dust darkened the sky." Mendoza was not the only place injured. At San Juan, 100 miles northward, 3,000 people were killed. 350 miles further away, Cordova lost a number of houses, and a slight shock was felt at Buenos Aires. The wreck presented the scenes common in such cases, and, as in several similar disasters, bands of brigands pounced upon the town to pillage the ruins. Of the many touching incidents, we must give place to two. That the town was absolutely unwarned is hardly correct. A French geologist, Monsieur Brevard, sent on a scientific mission by the Russian government, had found the volcanoes nearby violently roaring, yet emitting no smoke or fire, and, nearing the valley of Mendoza, he found the soil in a constant tremor. Alarmed at these manifestations, he expressed his belief that if the pressure were not speedily relieved by eruption, a severe earthquake might follow. His assertion caused serious apprehension, for his high attainments gave his opinions great weight with the people. For nearly a week, the possibility of a catastrophe was seriously discussed. One evening, he stood at the door of Monsieur Matusier, wishing his friends good night. Again, he alluded to the earthquake. The shock came, and he was caught by the fall of the house. Matusier himself was on his way home from Valparaiso. When 15 miles from Mendoza, in the mountains, a tremendous roaring was heard, but he felt no shock. The moon shone as calmly and clearly as ever, and no disturbance followed. Oppressed, however, by terrible fear, he hastened to Mendoza. He could not even guess where was the wreck of his own home. After a long, despairing search, he saw his great house-dog come bounding toward him. The dog led him to the wreck, and, after wearisome toil, the merchant found his wife and one child alive. The rest of the family and the French geologist were dead. Another episode is related by Monsieur Charton. There was at Mendoza a rich French hotel-keeper, Monsieur Tesse. After the shock, quote, one of his intimate friends wandered among the ruins. His eyes were dry. He could shed tears no longer. He stopped on the site of the hotel, trying in vain to recall the old arrangements. He was retiring, his heart filled with sighs, thinking of the honest man and the family he had loved so well, when he perceived, through the shapeless mass of girders and calcined stones, Monsieur Tesse's dog, which moaned. He approached it. The poor animal, the two hind legs and part of the body of which were crushed, forced itself, in spite of its sufferings and weakness, to scratch with his front paws, and uttered from time to time a plaintive howl. As it saw its master's friend come near, it exerted itself and howled louder. The friend understood that Tesse must be beneath this rubbish, and hoped he was not dead. He ran to fetch some persons, and with their help, after much labor, he indeed discovered the body of poor Tesse. His left arm and leg, lying under the beams, were broken, his mouth and eyes full of earth, but he still breathed. Before trying to disengage his limbs, they washed his face, 
which seemed to relieve him. Without saying a word, he instinctively stretched his right arm toward his dog, who drew himself to him and died a few moments afterwards. Tasse hardly was in a state to pronounce any words before he asked where his family was. All had perished in the great disaster. Hearing this answer, he closed his eyes with despair. Then, making a fresh effort, he pronounced the name of his little girl and showed with his finger a separate place where he had put her to bed. Some of the people, in compassion for his grief, although without hope, made further search. Others occupied themselves in dressing his broken limbs. A few minutes later, those rendering him this service saw him suddenly raise himself up. He gave a cry. They brought him his daughter still living. A beam had fallen across the bed of the child and had protected it. But she was seriously wounded in the head. She had also her mouth and eyes filled with dirt and was exhausted with hunger. End quote. For two months, the pair lay under a tent against a tree, more dead than alive. They only remained to each other of the once rich and happy family. But in this respect, they were no worse off than hundreds of others. The people abandoned the site, unable to remain in view of so many monuments of former happiness. Strangers came in, and a new Mendoza rose, but not so lovely as the former one. This town was also severely shaken in 1885. With a notice of one other earthquake, which demands attention because of unusual results, this chapter must close. This shock occurred August 13, 1868, in Peru. The center of the convulsion was at Arequipa, at the foot of a lofty volcanic mountain of Misti. Which has not shown signs of activity since the great outburst of 1542. So far as their volcanic neighbor was concerned, the 44,000 people of Arequipa had apparently no reason for apprehension. At five minutes past five, there came a light shock like the jar of a distant explosion. Half a minute later began the subterranean rumbling. With a rapidly increasing vibration, which made the people run for their lives into the streets. Then, quote, the swaying motion changed into a fierce vertical upheaval. The subterranean roaring increased in a terrifying manner. Then were heard the heart piercing shrieks of the wretched people, the bursting of walls, the crashing fall of houses and churches, while over all rolled thick clouds of a yellowish black dust. Which, had they been poured forth many minutes longer, would have suffocated thousands. Tacna and Arica suffered a little less, but the greatest damage in the coast region was from the sea wave. A few minutes after the shock, the sea rolled back, falling 25 feet. Then a huge black wall of water leaped up 50 feet in height and rushed for the shore. The American vice consul at Arica, well versed in the phenomena of earthquakes, left his house at the first shock and ran with his family to the hills to avoid any probable sea wave. The monster billow struck the mole to pieces and swept clean the lower part of the town. Six vessels were lost in the bay or tossed over rocks and houses. Two, a Peruvian corvette and a United States warship, were carried inland and left high and dry half a mile north of Arica, 
without a broken spar or tarnished flag. Similar feats were recorded at Iquique. 1,200 miles of seacoast were more or less affected. $60 million worth of property were destroyed and 20,000 people killed. The Great Sea Wave was especially remarkable. Recoiling from the Peruvian coast, in three hours its southern expansion was observed at Coquimbo, 800 miles south. An hour later it was at Constitución, 450 miles further. Northward, the wave rushed, 60 feet high, into the harbor of San Pedro, California, 5,000 miles from the shock. To the westward, the Sandwich Islands were reached that night, and irregular waves broke upon the coast for three days. Before midnight, it broke upon the Marquesas and the Paumotu Archipelago. At half past three in the morning, it was at New Zealand. By daylight, it was surging along the coasts of Australia, and by midday, it was tossing even on the southwest coast of Australia. The same day, it was heaving on the shores of Japan. This wave is doubtless surpassed only by the great wave set in motion by the convulsion of Krakatoa, mentioned in the chapter on volcanoes. It traveled to a distance of 10,500 miles from its starting point at a speed of from 400 to 500 miles an hour, according to the direction. Yet it has had several strong rivals. Had the great wave of 1867, at the time of the earthquake at St. Thomas, been raised in the open sea instead of in the comparatively shut-in Caribbean, it might have traveled to an equal distance. The sea wave which followed the earthquake at Samoda, Japan, in 1854, completely wiped out that town, leaving only fragments of a temple wall and some wrecked vessels two miles inland. Most of the people perished. Recoiling from the coast, the wave rolled in upon the shores of California, traveling 5,000 miles in 12 hours. The terrible earthquake that ravaged Jamaica in 1692 produced a wave that swept 33 feet of water over the highest house in Port Royal, destroying 3,000 persons. An English frigate, the Swan, was deposited on the top of a large building, breaking in the roof. The waves of the Lisbon and Calabrian earthquakes have been noticed elsewhere. This same district in Peru has suffered similarly several times. Callao, with the ground on which it was built, was swept away in 1746. Only 15 of its people ever reached Lima, six miles inland. When the town was rebuilt, a second disaster of this sort nearly destroyed it. In Quique and Arequipa, in Peru, were again destroyed May 9, 1877, and a wave 70 feet high swept the coast, and recoiling reached Japan next day, traveling 218 yards per second. The cases given illustrate well the stupendous power and destructiveness of vibrations in the Earth's surface. But few have been given, nor have all the greatest been detailed. Mention only must suffice for the one which shook Naples and vicinity, December 5, 1456, destroying 40,000 people. Another in Persia, June 7, 1755, destroyed Kashin with 40,000 people. One at Cairo, Egypt, the preceding year, killed 20,000. 
Another in the Abruzzi, Italy, November 3, 1706, killed 15,000 persons. One at Palermo, Sicily, September 13, 1726, killed 6,000. 100,000 perished in the Pekin earthquake of November 30, 1731. 2,000 were destroyed by an earthquake in the Kutch district, India, in 1819. Constantinople was overturned in the year 1800. 6,000 people perished in an earthquake in Murcia, Spain, in 1829. 1,500 were killed by Italian earthquakes in 1835-36. Southern Syria suffered greatly in 1836. Haiti was shaken, and 4,000 people perished in 1842. 100,000 houses and 30,000 people destroyed by an earthquake in Japan, 1854. Montenero, Calabria, and 10,000 people in 1857. 5,000 people in Ecuador, 1859. Northwestern Khorasan, Persia, with 30,000 people in 1871. Antioch again nearly destroyed in 1872, 3,000 people killed in Kashmir, 1885. Terrible as this list seems, the total but little exceeds the havoc wrought by the single Bengal famine of 1866. There would be little difficulty in proving that drought, with the consequent famine, has proved the most terrible agent of destruction known to man and yet it is one that facilities for rapid transit should render least destructive. Scientific men have within 40 years made efforts to keep a sort of catalog of shocks, but the frequency of earthquakes has rendered this a profitless task. Great ones are long remembered, but as for numbering the minor shocks, one might as well count rainfalls. Several occur every day, and it is only when unusually destructive, like extraordinary tempests, that they attract any attention, so that their being recorded depends even more upon location than upon actual force. All the phenomena of volcanoes and earthquakes point us to one conclusion, that the earth may in time become as dead and deserted as the moon. The telescope shows the latter to be thickly dotted with volcanic craters, whose immensity, in comparison with those of our own globe, is astounding. Yet all are extinct. It is not probable that the interior of our earth is molten, and we have seen that fractures and subsidence, caused by gradual cooling, seem to be the main cause of the local phenomena of volcanoes and earthquakes. As the ages roll on, these weak places may become still higher and the belt of warm climate will grow narrower and narrower. Cooling at the present rate, 2,500,000,000 years will be necessary to render it as lifeless as the moon. Quote, as the cooling progresses, a sheet of snow and ice from north and south will descend from the mountains upon the tablelands and valleys, driving before it life and civilization, and covering forever the cities and nations that it meets in its passage. All life and human activity will press insensibly toward the intertropical zone. The great cities of the world will fall asleep in succession under their eternal shroud. During very many ages, 
equatorial humanity will undertake Arctic expeditions to find again under the ice the place of Paris, Lyon, Bordeaux, and Marseille. The sea coasts will have changed, and the geographical map of the earth will have been transformed. No one will live and breathe, except in the equatorial zone, up to the day when the last family, nearly dead with cold and hunger, will sit on the shore of the last sea, in the rays of the sun, which will thereafter shine here on a dead, cold earth, revolving, like a satellite moon, about a sun unseen by mortal eyes, and distributing to an extinguished planet a useless heat." So will end the history of our planet and its great disasters. All worldly shapes shall melt in gloom, the sun himself must die, before this mortal shall assume its immortality. I saw a vision in my sleep that gave my spirit strength to sweep adown the gulf of time. I saw the last of human mold that shall creation's death behold as Adam saw her prime. The sun's eye had a sickly glare, the earth with age was wan. The skeletons of nations were around that lonely man. Some had expired in fight, the brands still rusted in their bony hands. In plague and famine some. Earth's cities had no sound or tread, and ships were drifting with the dead to shores where all was dumb. Yet prophet-like that lone one stood, with dauntless words and high, that shook the sere leaves from the wood, as if a storm passed by, saying, We are twins in death, proud son, thy face is cold, thy race is run, tis mercy bids thee go. For thou ten thousand years hast seen the tide of human tears that shall no longer flow. End of chapter 26 Great Disasters and Horrors in the World's History by Alan H. Godby The Reign of Law Man is born on a battlefield, round him to rend or resist the dread powers he displaces attend. By the cradle which nature, amid the stern shocks that have shattered creation and shapened it, rocks. He leaps with a wail into being, and lo, his own mother, fierce nature herself, is his foe. Her whirlwinds are roused into wrath o'er his head. Neath his feet roll her earthquakes, her solitudes spread. To daunt him, her forces dispute his command. Her snows fall to freeze him, her suns burn to brand. Her seas yawn to engulf him, her rocks rise to crush. And the lion and leopard allied lurk to rush on their startled invader. Not a truth has to art or to science been given, but brows have ached for it, and souls toiled and striven. And many have striven, and many have failed, and many died, slain by the truth they assailed. The original condition of the human race was not one of knowledge. When the first man and the first monkey were created and finished, the monkey knew as much as the man. Both found themselves in a world of forces of a nature of which, beyond what was revealed to their native instincts, they knew nothing at all. 
The man's superiority lay not in knowledge, but in capacity to know. Man learned the forces and facts of nature by experience. He learned them at the cost to himself of fear and pain and toil and death. He plucked one fruit and found it wholesome, another and found it bitter, another and found it deadly. The surviving son learned to avoid the mistakes of his father. Man was not long in gaining a knowledge of his environment, enough at least, if he would not be too venturesome, to conserve in some degree his happiness and life. He learned that fire will burn, that water will drown, that storms will blow, that floods will overwhelm, that winter will come, and that his life is dependent on continual quest and avoidance. But nature held innumerable secrets which he did not know, many which even today he has not learned. In proportion as he should become acquainted with these, he would be master of a situation, which at the first so nearly mastered him. He might acquire a magnificent fortune, if he would only work for it, Accordingly, we're told that his maker admonished him to subdue and have dominion. Whether man has been six thousand years or sixty thousand in learning the little that he now knows, no one can tell. But during these years of his primary tuition, he could not through knowledge have the mastery of nature, for knowledge was too meager. It was well, therefore, that he should, in the meanwhile, have a partial mastery through faith. Ignorant of natural forces, or without means of avoidance, is it any wonder that he should fly for refuge to the supernatural? Accordingly, God was his refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Believing himself watched and defended by infinite power and love, he could run through a troop or leap over a wall. He could fancy himself immortal till his work was done. Safe on the battlefield as in his chamber, he was not afraid of the pestilence that walketh in darkness, nor of the destruction that wasteth at noonday. Of earthquake and storm and fire he was not afraid, for these were the ministers of heaven's will, if not to be avoided, then to be accepted with submission and trust. Such faith in the presence and interposition of the supernatural was instructive to the young world, and as necessary as its mother's milk is to a babe. It gave comfort and repose and strength, for its subject felt that underneath and round about him were the everlasting arms. It made heroes of cowardly men on battlefields, heroines of weak women in humble homes. It produced the sublimest characters of history. It vanquished death, sustained by it. It is literally true that men subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in fight, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. The sudden loss of this faith from earth would be a calamity. It would be as though the sun and moon had been darkened, and the stars had gone out in the sky. Till men know more of nature, they must continue to lean on the supernatural. They may never do this less than they do it now, but they will do it more intelligently. As the child with growing strength is weaned from the breast, 
so increasing knowledge tends to the destruction of faith. It may be stated as a law that among other things being equal, faith in the manifestation of the supernatural, in the miraculous, is most facile to him who knows the least. Accordingly, the men of highest attainments have commonly the least of this kind of faith. They still believe in something back of nature, some cause of nature, in the supernatural, but they expect nothing from it outside the lines of natural law. They know nothing of miracle or special providence. They see everywhere cause and effect, the one not present without the other, the perpetual grinding of machinery and the wretch mangled who is caught between the wheels. The wisest and best of men, pillars of state or prophets of the Lord, crushed as surely as the vilest and the meanest. All the prayers of God's people will not make rivers flow back to their fountains, nor turn the Sahara into a sea, nor thaw the ice at the poles, nor relieve the famine, nor stop the pestilence, nor level a single molehill, nor make one hair white or black. The whole universe is held in the chain of cause and effect, with link joined to link forever and ever. The supernatural may be the electric energy that thrills along the endless chain, but it never quits the conductor to find out new paths. What it does today, it did a thousand years ago, and will do a thousand years hence. So speaks and so believes the student of nature. We may be extremely reluctant to admit his teaching, and yet the facts seem to be altogether with him. The evidence is overwhelming that men everywhere, good and bad alike, are dealing directly not with the supernatural, but with nature, with law, nothing but natural law. If any hesitate to accept this saying, we do not press them, for the time has not yet come when they could accept it with safety. The babe will cling to the mother's breast as long as he needs it, and sometimes longer, but by and by he will abandon it of himself. A world of iron law is not our ideal world, though the evidence grows that it is the real one. We like law well enough when it defends us. We are not pleased with it when it chastises us. At such a moment we would flee to some friendlier power, we would go to God and tell him that nature is not treating us well, and that we desire his interposition. It is because we are afraid of nature that we take so much interest in the supernatural. But what reason have we to think that the supernatural is better than nature? The supernatural has had more prophets than nature, and will doubtless continue to have them. Far be it from us to forbid them. Let them prophesy in the name of the Lord. Let them strengthen the weak hands and confirm the feeble knees. Inspire courage in adversity, calmness in the face of death. But we should like to remind them that if they have done much good, they have also done some evil. They have greatly obstructed a lesson, the most important for men to know, a lesson which they must learn at last, whether they like to learn it or not. A lesson which they need to learn as soon as they can, because certain knowledge is better to shape the life than is uncertain faith. A lesson that will bring them face to face with the real conditions of their present and eternal well-being, 
we mean this lesson, that the supernatural, the primal fountain of force, goes forth only in streams of natural law. So far as can be shown, it manifests itself in no other way. Contrary to this, the prophets of the supernatural have often encouraged man to believe that he shall not reap as he has sown, that he may sow to the flesh and yet reap to the spirit, that outside and alongside the machinery of law is another and more masterful machinery of providence and grace, that the latter is ordained a sure corrective and deliverer from the evils of the former, that so almighty is this invisible, ever-active and presiding energy, that it can, by a momentary display, transform the most inveterate sinner into a saint, and crown him with everlasting happiness, although meanwhile it supinely leaves the innocent child, the victim of Adam's fall, to sink into the flames of hell. Our sense of justice is shocked, virtue is dismayed, vice is emboldened, and the so-called scheme of grace, less pitiful and just than that of nature, is seen to differ from it chiefly in this, that it offers greater encouragement to sin. Nature throughout all her regions proclaims the dominion of law. She has incessantly denounced woe to its violator. A million times has she shown us the delinquent writhing under the scourge. Never once has the transgressor escaped his transgression. Like a staunch murderer, steady to his purpose, follows him through every lane of life, nor misses once the track. And soon or late he is overtaken. Privation or pain is the inexorable penalty. Nature with trumpet voices shouts incessantly, Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. The dominion of law is shown in the punishment of intentional disobedience, what men call sin. Its natural consequences are remorse, degradation, and spiritual death. A being of loftiest make is reduced to the likeness of a vile and venomous thing, crawling on its belly through the dust. Higher enjoyments are exchanged for such as are brutish and vile, so to speak, the life of a hummingbird, flitting through all sunny climes and scenes, and feeding on nectar, is exchanged for the life of a swine, feeding on offal, and wallowing in the mire. And never once is a wound made by the lash of law, healed without a scar. In other words, transgression leaves its permanent impress on the soul, and the transgressor, despite the incantations of priest or prophet, finds himself poorer forever. He has forfeited the peace of them that do well. He has peopled the past with bitter memories, the future with gloomy forebodings. Reason untrammeled, loyal to the truth and pursuing it with success, has been substituted with reason fettered, with chains of prejudice and vile affection, loving and making a lie. Habit, with every successive stroke of action, has riveted these chains more firmly till the victim is fast bound hand and foot and delivered over to despair. The order of downward progress is transgression, spiritual pain, stupor, insensibility, permanent degradation, which is spiritual death. 
In all this, there is no immediate or special judgment of God, no working of the supernatural apart from natural law. If there were no God at all, while the constitution of man and the universe should remain as they are, the consequences to the transgressor would in no wise be altered. The sinner has nothing to fear but natural law, and sooner or later he finds this terrible enough. But the punishment of sin is not the most impressive proof of the dominion of law. We feel that the willful transgressor is entitled to the punishment of his deed. Hence, even when his punishment is severest, he fails to command our fullest sympathy. That the organization of nature should be such as systematically to afflict the sinner is not more than our sense of justice would prompt us to expect. But the punishment of ignorance offers a more impressive spectacle, a more striking exhibition of the dominion of law. It seems that ignorance, especially when absolutely unavoidable, might be pleaded in bar of punishment. But nature obviously does not accept the plea, nor does it avail us in this emergency to appeal from nature to the supernatural. The supernatural refuses to entertain the appeal, positively declines to interfere, and natural law is left to take its course. The ignorant must suffer as surely as the guilty, and often his suffering is not less severe. For the slightest mistakes men forfeit happiness or life, mistakes not of themselves alone, but mistakes of others. The sin or the error belongs to one man. The weight of the suffering often falls to another. Even our benevolence seems to be punished, for quite frequently the effort to help others brings disaster to ourselves, to our fortunes, to our families, our lives. Seeking to rescue another from fire or water, from the assassin or the robber, from the domestic tyrant or the foreign invader, we lose life. And, for the lack of our help, our children are uneducated, exposed to moral evil, neglected, turned out of doors. The very tramp, whom for pity we took in from the streets, robs us, murders us. Meanwhile, the supernatural beholds and makes no sign, gives no indication that it is at all concerned. The suffering which comes through unavoidable ignorance, or which is visited upon the innocent through the deeds of the guilty, is in its sum total appalling and unspeakable. It is a dark and fathomless ocean whose waves have been incessantly beating on the shores of this dreary world since time began. Every drop of this mighty ocean has been wrung out through the operation of natural law. An omniscient eye, every hour of the day and night, through countless ages, has gazed into these waters of anguish, and has declined to lessen their quantity by a single atom. No order from the supernatural has gone forth to countermand any decree of nature. Man has stood alone grappling with his antagonist, and though he has cried incessantly, heaven has left him to his fate. Could there be a more awful demonstration of the supremacy of natural law? Nature slays in babyhood one-third of all the children that are born into the world, just because they have not strength to resist her. Meanwhile, she carefully preserves such tyrants as Tiberius to finish their three scores, years, and ten, 
though every added year means the murder of a thousand of the best men and women to be found in a wide empire. Why does not the supernatural rise up from his place and smite the tyrant to the earth? Is it not plain that we're dealing with natural forces alone? For six thousand years, God knows how long, Africa has been a hell, then which perhaps no man need ever fear a worse. If the pulpit may convince a sinner that as a result of his ways he shall be turned black, body and soul, and sent to Africa, there perpetually to renew his life as often as it is extinguished by the superstition and fiendishness of his fellows, and the said sinner do not then begin to live more wisely, it will be useless to talk to him of fire and brimstone. Upon this horrible theater of action, perhaps six hundred million of human beings have been projected in every century, coming without their will to a heritage of nakedness and superstition and barbarity absolutely prohibitive of happiness here or hope for the hereafter. And yet there has been no interposition of the supernatural in their behalf. The laws of birth and death preside just as if there were no power above us that cares for either. It is one of the ordinances of nature that life without nourishment shall not be prolonged. There is reason to believe that God would see the last man starved from off this planet, and the planet itself plunged onward into the void, tenantless forever, before he would command that stones should be made bread. Not twenty years ago, eighteen million in the northern provinces of China starved to death in a single year. What horrible anxiety of hollow-eyed mothers for gasping babies! What hideous deaths, day by day! What acres of unburied corpses! What throngs about religious altars, wringing their hands and screaming to the heavens till it would seem that the agony of their prayers would have shaken the very stars from the sky, and yet there was none that heard, nor any that regarded. Not a single stone was turned into bread, not a single life was sustained without food, and if any survived, it was the heartless brother who wrested the last morsel from his weak and dying sister." A ghastly instance of the dominion of law, attested by eighteen million of dead witnesses. Can we look upon such a scene, and ever again expect a petty interposition in behalf of an individual when it has been denied to a nation, and when the continent of Africa has waited for it through countless ages? Instances might be multiplied to infinity. Every horror recorded in this book is a proclamation of the supremacy of law, a warning to men that if they would shun the effect, they must avoid the cause, that they must foresee the laws and attributes of nature, and provide, or they must perish. Strange that after ages of such awful teaching, man is yet a fool, too lazy, too stupid to open his eyes vigorously fighting against knowledge when every interest of his soul and body are at stake, saying supinely, it makes no difference whether you know much or little or what you believe, provided only you are sincere, and in the same breath dishonestly hearkening to his prejudices or his passions, becoming a compound of ignorance, 
superstition, and self-will, which first defies and rouses the powers of nature, and then flies howling to the supernatural for deliverance. When we think how little man has learned, notwithstanding the severity of his schooling, we're less disposed to accuse the harshness of nature's administration. Our reflections on the course of nature have not proved that there is no God, but rather that there is. The order, regularity, and certainty of natural forces indicates a changeless, exhaustless fountain from whence those forces flow. Amid the ceaseless mutations of the universe, this primal energy seems to be the one thing in which there is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. It flows on resistless along the same channels from age to age. It overwhelms whatever lies in its path. It would sweep away all the millions of earth like a grain of sand. It would sweep the very stars from the sky. Nothing can arrest it. Nothing change its course. It accommodates itself to nobody. All must be accommodated to it or suffer disaster. It is inexorable, like that rock upon which if a man fall, he shall be broken. But if it fall upon him, it will grind him to powder. It is not man who is running this puny world. It is a changeless, eternal power. No fear that any human combinations in capitals or temples will swerve this infinite energy or control it in the least. That which is according to its nature, it will do, and it will do nothing else. It is absolute monarch, and woe to him who resists its sway. We are amazed, awed, and subdued in the contemplation. We begin to feel that there is but one thing for us to do, and that is to learn its ways, and by increasing knowledge and obedience as rapidly as possible, to put ourselves in accord with its goings forth. Should we enter some vast factory where there are acres of floor space and wheels and cogs and pulleys and hands and machines of patterns innumerable, all propelled by a giant engine hidden away in the cellar? Should we see all this wilderness of wheels moving in concert and every machine turning out the work for which it was intended, we should neither doubt the existence of the power nor the benevolence of the whole design nor if presently we saw a workman reaching after some fancied good drawn between wheels and mangled or a hundred ignorant or careless persons caught up and whirled round and round and dashed to death would we find any occasion to reverse our judgment to doubt either the existence of a controlling force or its essential goodness rather we should be impressed with its terrible supremacy and with the importance of seeking out the lines of its manifestation and learning to avoid a conflict. Law is not an entity, but only the mode of an entity, not a thing existing, but the attribute of a thing, not in itself a power, but the manner of the action of a power. When a power, through a given cause, produces a given effect, and the same effect from the same cause, this regularity of manifestation fulfills our idea of law. 
The great original energy must act with this perfect regularity, that is, it must govern by law, and that equally, whether this original energy be a thing only or a person, in either case, we must accept it as uncreated, necessary, having a definite constitution or nature. In this power or person, natural laws are rooted, and from it they proceed as rays of light from the sun. To arrest the rays, you must quench the luminary. To arrest the current forces of nature, you must stay their author. The goings forth of power from this exhaustless fountain are necessary, ceaseless, changeless, resistless. If this fountain is an impersonal force, we can no more expect it on any account to relax its energy than we can expect the engine in the cellar to stop because some wretch upstairs has been caught between the wheels. If it is personal, having the attributes of wisdom and goodness, which is the popular idea of God, still from the very attributes with which it is invested, we must expect it to have all the uniformity, precision, and inexorableness of a machine. Its mode of action must be the same in all cases that are alike, though the series be infinite else there will be more or less than perfect wisdom or perfect goodness in some of the series. More would be impossible, less would impeach the power, hence the action must be uniform and resistless. It must show the characteristics of law, nothing else but law. God cannot consent to do something that is not perfectly wise and perfectly good because he has been importuned so to do by fools or because a creature is going to be crushed. Therefore neither with him an infinitely wise and good being nor with nature's laws which are but the effluence of his nature can there be any variableness or shadow of turning. The general acceptance of this truth will mark a step forward in the progress of humanity. Such knowledge will largely displace the faith of the past and the present, but there will be a net gain. We have been looking for God outside of nature, but while some profess to have seen him, the majority have been weak in faith or wholly unbelieving. When we learn to see God in nature, we shall see him every day. We shall then truly realize that in him we live and move and have our being. We shall have substituted certainty in the governing power for something very like caprice. We shall not expect the supernatural to forbid the natural any more than we shall expect the sun to quarrel with his beams. Knowing definitely what not to expect of God, we shall understand precisely what to expect from ourselves. We shall comprehend more fully the Maker's meaning when he said, Subdue and have dominion. Judaism alone of all religions took no cognizance of a future state. If man thoroughly adjusted himself to this world's laws, he needed not fear for the hereafter. Therein is the strongest proof of its divine origin, and along this line a thousand victories have been won, but much yet remains. The results of human folly are lessening daily as man progresses. The means of rational enjoyment have been already vastly increased, and there will be further enlargement. But men, not angels, must do the work. Moses and his people stood, the sea before, 
and Pharaoh and his hosts behind them. In this extremity, he lifted his hands and cried to heaven. The answer that came was hardly such as he expected, but it may be very suggestive to us. Wherefore criest thou unto me? Speak unto the children of Israel, that they go forward. End of chapter 29 And end of great disasters and horrors in the world's history by Alan H. Godby Do you like the TV series Tales from the Crypt? Are you interested in full episode and movie reviews from Tales from the Crypt? This podcast is for you. The Good Evening Kitties podcast, where I, Melissa, your ghostess with the mostess, recap every episode with special guests and bonus horror movie reviews. The Good Evening Kitties podcast can be found on most podcast platforms. Check it out today.